Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Uh, and I certainly want to start by welcoming you, Justice Ginsburg. Um, Justice Ginsburg and I were talking um, before this, and we realized that she was on the same law faculty as my father, and I was in her daughter's law school class. <laughs> and son-in-laws. And son-in-laws as well, yeah. And I wanted to thank you so much for coming out here. Not everybody's willing to jump out of a plane onto an inflatable slide. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I had not planned that as part of my, <laughs> my journey here, but I had a unique invitation from Hastings Law School, and it was this way. I think it was Evan Lee who said, here is the program for the San Francisco Opera in September. <laughs> Pick anyone, and Mary Kay Kane will invite you as her guest. <laughs> and so uh, we saw last night a remarkable production of Turandot, and I think there are performances remaining, so I highly recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I gather you did get to the opera, despite the fact you were, you were late. I missed the first act, but Turandot doesn't appear till the second act, so. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it was a David Hockney designed oh, production. It oh, was wow. stunning. Yeah. Um, well, I wanted to go back a little bit and talk about your, your past and early life. Um, you've often said that the person who influenced you the most was your mother, and that her two mm -hmm. key messages were to be a lady and to be independent. Yeah. And I was thinking about that, and I think for many, many women of her generation, um, they wouldn't have seen it as a problem if a wife was supported by her husband. Um, did she think differently? It, on the contrary, if a, if a woman worked, it was a sign that her husband couldn't make it. Mm -hmm. It was a disgrace for a man to have a woman who worked outside the home. Mm -hmm. I think my father realized many years later that my mother would have been, she would have had a fuller life uh, had she been gainfully employed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it sounds like if she was sending you that early the message that it was very important for a woman and even a wife to be independent, she sounds like a bit of a free thinker for her generation. Well, she, of course, hoped that I would someday meet Prince Charming. Mm -hmm. Which you did. <laughs> And then be married happily ever after, as I was for 56 mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. But she also thought it important for a woman to be self-standing and to be able to support herself and her mm -hmm. family if need be. Interesting. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. um, another influence you've said on you actually was the novelist Vladimir Nabokov. And I wanted to hear you talk about that a little bit since... Most people don't think of artists and lawyers in the same breath, but you're clearly very interested and attracted and drawn to art. Well, uh, Nabokov was, was a, a European literature professor at Cornell University, and he changed the way I read mm -hmm. 
and influenced the way I write. He was a man in love with the sound of words. Mm. And let me see if I can can give you one example. It was it was a quiz that we had on the Dickens novel Bleak House. And the question was, when we first meet the character Pee-Pee, where is he? And our professor announced that most of you remembered that Pee-Pee's head is sticking through a grate. But only seat number 59, which happened to be my husband Marty's seat, wrote that we see Pee-Pee's large head sticking through a grate. And that large gives you an image of the misery of this child that you would not uh, have otherwise. I remember that he read to us the first page of Bleak House, giving the picture of Miss Flight and the fog. He also spoke, I think English was his third language. His first was French and then Russian and then English. And he spoke about what he liked in the English language. Suppose you wanted to to say a white horse. Well, in English, you say white horse, and you see white before horse, so when you get to the horse, it's already white. In French, you say cheval blanc, mm-hmm. and you see brown, a brown horse, and then you have to convert it. <laughs> <laughs> so I, the, that you're known in your opinions for, as you said, keep it right and keep it tight. Yes. Did that come from him in part? It came in part from him. It also came from my being a law teacher and a lawyer and realizing that judicial opinions were much longer than they they had to be. I I think my students would agree. (laughs) I also wanted to ask you about your husband, Marty Ginsburg, um, uh, who you said was the first boy I ever met who cared I had a brain. he was really unusual for his generation in his unstinting support for your career. And I, I just wonder very concretely how you balanced work and family day to day. And for example, when you took off to study Swedish civil procedure, your daughter must have been, what, five or six? How did, six. It, how did you put it all together? Marty and I married the same month I graduated from Cornell. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had never lived alone. And I worried about little things like, uh, could I figure out the tip at a restaurant? Could I do those things for myself? So Marty understood um, and was supportive of my decision and kept Jane, who was then, I guess she was in kindergarten. And when her school finished, then she came and joined me. So I had my six weeks all on my own. I got it out of my system. I was <laughs> confident that I could manage for myself. But one of, my, one of my dear college friends noticed something about Marty. When we were very young, we met. I was 17, he was 18. That Marty was so confident of his own ability so comfortable with himself that he never regarded me as any kind of a threat. Uh, On the contrary, he always made me believe 
that I could do more than I thought I could. Mm -hmm. And I think that's my gender in the law class wanted to know um, what advice you have for finding a partner who's really a partner, and I think you just gave it to us. Well, the, the other special thing about Marty is he was a great cook. <laughs> and he said that he attributed his skill in the kitchen to two people, first his mother and then his wife. Now, I think that that was very unfair with respect to my mother-in-law, but it was an accurate description of me. I had, we started out, I was the everyday cook and he was the weekend and company cook. I had seven things I could make. <laughs> and when we got to number seven, we went back to number one. And they all came from a book called The 60 Minute Chef, which meant nothing took longer than one hour to go from the kitchen to the table. Marty got as, as a gift when we, was, we were, spent the first two years of our marriage in Lawton, Oklahoma, the location of Fort Sill. And Marty was an artillery officer. So when, my, when Jane was born, I went back to his folks and, and she was born in Long Island. My cousin sent Marty the Escoffier cookbook, an English translation, and said, this will give you something to do while your wife is away. Marty had started out as a chemistry major in Cornell till golf practice interfered with the labs. <laughs> so he took this uh, cookbook and he treated it like a chemistry text. And he started with the basic stocks. And we were at Fort Sill for two years. So he was quite accomplished by the time we left. So cooking is chemistry. <laughs> and then the best part of the story for me is Jane, around her high school years, she was 15, 16, noticed a distinct difference between mommy's cooking and daddy's cooking. <laughs> and she decided that I should be phased out of the kitchen. <laughs> We, so that's, moved, that's we, moved to we moved to Washington, <laughs> D.C. in 1980, and I have not cooked a meal wow. from the day we, we, uh, <laughs> we made our move. And that's true even today. Sadly, my husband died a year ago, June, but my daughter comes once a month to cook for me. She fills the freezer. Sometimes she makes so much I have to take the overload to the quartz freezer. <laughs> well, that's wonderful because having read so much about you and knowing that you don't like to cook, I was worried about who was cooking for you. <laughs> so now I know. Um, one of the uh, another question related to to your late husband um, from my class as well. When, as you've mentioned, that when you got appointed to the D.C. Circuit, he gave up his job in New York. Um, and was he still practicing, or was he just a professor? He, he, he was of counsel to Wild Gotchel mm -hmm. and Manages, but he, he was a professor at Columbia Law School. Mm -hmm. And he gave up both and followed you to Washington. Um, so my question well, he is... Well, he transferred to Georgetown. To Georgetown, yes. Uh -huh. um, what would you say to young men about why they should accept a family situation where, well, where their career sometimes comes second? 
I think in a, in a, a family, there's a balance. Sometimes, um, well, we started out, I said, fortunately, in Fort Sill, Oklahoma, and then we were students together for the next two years, so it was natural to share, to share everything. Uh, when Marty was starting out in law practice and eager to make partner, I'd say I took, I was responsible for the lion's share of taking care of Jane and, and the home. But that balance changed when the women's movement came alive and Marty appreciated the importance of the work I was doing. So then, then I became the person that was, um, whose, whose career came first. Mm-hmm. And when I was appointed to the D.C. Circuit, so often people would come up to me and say, it must be hard for you commuting back and forth to New York. Because <laughs> they couldn't yeah. imagine that a man would leave his work to follow his his wife. Mm-hmm. And, and even then, we would go to parties, and I would be, we would be introduced, and I was introduced as Judge Ginsburg. A hand would extend to Marty. Oh, wow. <laughs> that didn't happen when I was appointed to the Supreme Court. <laughs> So you see, young ladies, we have a solution to that problem. (laughs) I should tell you, too, that Marty was a member of the Dennis Thatcher Club. He was introduced by uh, John O'Connor. And the qualification for being a member of the Dennis Thatcher Club is that your wife has a job that in your heart of hearts you would really like to have yourself. Um, I wanted to to talk as the first case that I wanted to talk about Hastings' very own Supreme Court case, which is Christian Legal Society versus Martinez. Um, As you know, it was a First Amendment case um, that said that Hastings could insist that all all student groups accept all comers. In other words, be open to anyone who wanted to join them. And when we teach that case, we find that students are generally satisfied with the Supreme Court's opinion. I'm sure you'll be pleased to hear. Um, but they, they wonder this. If every student, is re- student group is required to accept everyone, um, they wonder how an individual group can distinguish itself or its viewpoint. Do you have any thoughts? Not a legal question. Well, I think the, the history of that organization answers the question for years uh, the Christian Legal Society accepted all comers. And then when they became an affiliate of the National, I think it was the National who said, you, you can accept only t- true believers. And people who had been as part of the club when it was open to all comers talked about the experience of having people who were not the same, and particularly having gay members and how it affected them. So I think it was pretty clear that the equality policy worked and it did not in any way destroy 
the mission of the the organization. It just made them more understanding of others who were different. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> um, I want to shift to an establishment um, uh, clause case, and the establishment clause, of course, prohibits the establishment of religion. Um, and in one entire prior case law, for example, as you know, prohibits states from buying books for religious schools. Last term, the Supreme Court decided Arizona Christian STO versus Wynn, and that involved a state law that gave, gives a tax credit for up to $500 worth of contributions to student tuition organizations then that money is used to buy scholarships to pay for students to go to private schools, often religious schools. Um, A taxpayer sued, um, saying that this violated the Establishment Clause, and the Supreme Court majority, which you didn't join, said that the taxpayer had no standing to sue, um, distinguishing and and maybe overruling um, past cases. And, you know, as I think about Arizona... Christian STO, it leaves me wondering what's left of the Establishment Clause. Um, It seems that all a government needs to do is to structure funding through a a tax credit or a different tax expenditure rather than uh, paying a direct subsidy. So why is the Establishment Clause so important and how did that case affect it in your view? There are two distinct issues. Only one was involved in that case, and that is who can complain about a violation of the Establishment Clause. The precedential case was Flas v. Cohn, and it said, although taxpayers in general can't bring suit because they're not hurting any more than the next person as taxpayers, but we have an exception for the Establishment Clause because unless we allow taxpayer standing, then these actions by the government, arguably in violation of the clause, simply will go unchallenged. So that was Flas v. Cohn. Mm-hmm. And the, the Arizona case said taxpayers can't sue. They made a, an attempt to distinguish Flas. It distinguished it so that unless you have the facts of FLAST itself, it's doubtful whether you will be able to challenge any, anything, any action of government as a violation of the Establishment Clause if you are merely a, a citizen, a, a taxpayer. The, what is the content of the Establishment Clause has changed it was once thought that there was a wall of separation between church and state, that it was best for the state and best for the church if each tended to its own house and the government stayed out of any intermingling with religious organizations. There is, frankly, a different notion that uh, the current majority of the court uh, has, and that is there's no wall of separation, but there is um, a rule of non-discrimination. That is, in the tuition case, if you're going to give money to um, for scholarships to Catholic schools, equally you must give money to, to Jewish 
schools. The, the notion is there's room, lots of room for accommodation of religious beliefs, and the prohibition is on favoring, on favoring one religion over others. So that's the, the current uh, debate. What does the Establishment Clause mean? Does it mean state, you stay out of church affairs, or does it mean state, you can give to religion, you can support religion, as long as you do so with, without preferring one religion over others? That's a really dramatic shift from the understanding of the establishment clause well, that was taught while I was in law school. The, the two strains were there from the beginning, mm-hmm. but yes, it is. It's mm-hmm. A, mm-hmm. Um, you, uh, you've always really loved civil procedure, yes. <laughs> which is, I must say, a mystery to me. But uh, Well, the reason is that why? the greatest law school teacher I had was Benjamin Kaplan, the very first class I had in law school was civil procedure. And this man was so engaging. I also had in a civil procedure class uh, a classmate. His name is Anthony Lewis, and he was on a Neiman Fellowship, Neiman Fellowship. Uh, to Harvard. He's a journalist, and he was taking courses in the law school and in the college, and he, on that first day, performed brilliantly in class. So I went home and said to Marty, you know, if they're all that smart, I'm not going to make it in this place. <laughs> and he said, oh, you're at least as smart as he is. So I said, well, I'm going to try to uh, volunteer uh, and talk in class as much as that fellow. <laughs> um, but it was... I don't know whether I would have loved the subject so much if I didn't have this mm-hmm. really extraordinary teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also very tied up, I think, for you with access to justice. Is that right or yeah, not that's right? A, you can have all the rights in the world, but if you can't enforce them, they're not worth very much. Mm-hmm. There was a, a Supreme Court case, and I'm not going to remember the name last um, last term that was very well known and in which you dissented. It had to do with whether an uh, American who had been injured by a machine manufactured abroad could sue in the United States. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? The the Nicastro case. Exactly. This was a man who worked in a, a metal shop in New Jersey the employer had had purchased a shearing machine that was allegedly defective and was responsible for the accident. The manufacturer had engaged an exclusive distributor in the United States. The manufacturer's object was to sell as many machines any place in the United States. Uh, the manufacturer showed its wares every year at the trade fair of this metalworks organization. But the court held that there were not sufficient ties to the state of New Jersey to allow for the exercise of personal jurisdiction over the foreign manufacturer. My point was we are 
in, we are a nation in a world that doesn't know from states. They know from the United States. And this manufacturer couldn't care whether it was New Jersey or Arizona or Texas, just wanted to sell machines in the United States. The question then should be, are there sufficient contacts with the United States? Is this manufacturer sufficiently affiliated with the United States to authorize suit here? And then the question becomes one of what lawyers call venue. Yes, there's an affiliation with the United States. Where to sue? Well, the place of injury was a logical place to sue. That's where the accident happened. That's where the witnesses were. So my colleagues, it was a five to four decision, said you know, the ties have to be to New Jersey, not the United States as a whole. It's my classic example of why this current court is not pro-corporation, that that's a bum rap for this reason. There is not a single manufacturer in the United States that could escape liability to someone injured in the United States from use of that product. But foreign man manufacturers are home free. They can exploit a market in the United States, but they escape liability for the injury their products cause. And most important for foreign manu manufacturers are personal injury awards, which are vastly higher than awards elsewhere in the world. So the, the, the majority decision I found very difficult to understand when the, you're dealing with an entrepreneur who sees the United States as a market and a court saying, but you have to pinpoint a specific mm -hmm. state. If you, don't, if you avoid doing that, there will be no personal jurisdiction mm -hmm. over you. Well, I think when I was reading Nicasio, I thought, hmm, I understand why Justice Ginsburg cares about civil procedure. <laughs> it was clearly a very important case and, in my view, a sobering, sobering one. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the cases that I teach and have spent my life um, studying. The, uh, the key cases that began in the 1970s and you, with you litigating them and writing amici briefs about gender. Um, as of 1970, uh, and I quote you, the Supreme Court had never met a gender classification it didn't like. Um, the 14th Amendment, which, which guarantees equal protection under the law, was seen as applying to race but not gender. And this had been settled interpretation for over, I think it was 104 years. Uh, so. The question is, what made you think that you could get the court to overrule over a century of precedent? The Times, the court is a reactive institution. It's never in the forefront for social change. There's always a movement in society that's pushing the court that way. When you think of, of Brown v. Board and the, the campaign, it was not only that, that Thurgood Marshall was a brilliant lawyer and made building blocks to get up to Brown v. Board, but it was the tenor of the times. We had just fought a war, the Second World War, against an odious form of racism, and yet our troops, through most of the war, 
was separated by race. Apartheid in America really had to go after the Second World War because racism of the kind we had in the United States was wholly against what we were fighting for abroad. So the time was right for that recognition. And similarly, in, in, by 1970, the, the women's movement was revived, it, not just in the United States, but, but all over the world, some places ahead of us, some behind. But there was International Women's Year. Um, there, there was th- that issue that people cared about and the court as a great legal scholar Paul Foreign once said should never react to the weather of the day but inevitably it will react to the climate of the era mm-hmm. and the climate was right for that change you know in the very first brief um, that I helped write, Read Be Read, we put on the cover of the brief, we is the ACLU, represented Sally Reed, the names of two women, Paulie Murray and Dorothy Kenyon, because those women were saying the same things that we were saying, but they said it at a time when no one was prepared to listen, or very few people. Think of the the 60s, think of the liberal Warren court and the case of Hoyt against Florida. Gwendolyn Hoyt was what we would today call a battered woman, abused by her philandering husband. And one day, he had humiliated her to the breaking point. She spied a baseball bat belonging to her young son in the corner of the room. She took it and hit him over the head. He fell. It was the end of their argument. It was the end of his life, and it was the beginning of the murder prosecution of Gwendolyn Hoyt in Hillsborough County, Florida. Florida didn't put women on juries unless they came into the clerk's office and volunteered for service. How many men would volunteer if they could escape service? Her thought was, if there were women on the jury, they might better understand my state of mind. Not that they would acquit me, but at least she thought she might be convicted of the lesser crime of manslaughter rather than murder. She was convicted of murder by an all-male jury. And she had raised that question of the absence of women from the jury rolls in Florida all the way through the lower courts. The Supreme Court heard the case. And the attitude in 1961 was, we don't understand what women could be complaining about. They have the best of all possible worlds. They can serve if they want to. If they don't want to serve, they don't have to. Well, the notion of a citizen who escapes that basic obligation that you have 
to participate in the administration of justice. It really means that you don't consider that person a full citizen, that she's expendable in the administration of justice. The Supreme Court didn't um, react as it should have to Gwendolyn Hoyt's case. Ten years later, the Burger Court writes a unanimous decision in the Sally, Sally Reed's case saying that a provision of the Idaho uh, probate code that said, as between persons equally entitled to administer a decedent's estate, males must be preferred to females. The court unanimously held that that was unconstitutional. It was the times, and it was that Sally Reed was an ideal representative of what women were complaining about. Her case arose in tragic circumstances. She and her husband were childless, and they adopted a boy. They then separated, and Sally was awarded custody when the boy was of tender years, needed a mother's care. When the boy reached his teen years, the father said, I want, I want to take care of him. He needs to be prepared for a man's world. Sally thought that the father would not be a good influence on her son, and she was quite right. The boy was terribly depressed, and one day he took out one of his father's many guns and he killed himself. So Sally wanted to be appointed administrator of his estate, not because of it had any value, but for sentimental reasons. And she was faced with this provision. And she said, that's not fair. I applied first, so I should get the appointment. Now Sally Reed was, was not uh, a sophisticated woman. She made her living by taking care of elderly people in her home. She would not have called herself a feminist. She probably didn't even know the word. But she thought that she had suffered an injustice and she had faith in the legal system that it could right that wrong. So it was people like that in all the cases in the 70s These were real people, everyday people, who were ready to complain and thought the system could do something to redress their grievance. And you made sure it did? Well, I was very lucky to be there at the right time and in the right place, a law professor with a flexible schedule. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I thought a lot... You were very lucky to be the right person in the right place in the right time, and yet you were also quite brilliant at doing something I think a lot about, which is when you're trying to use legal change to fuel social change or in response to social change with a feedback loop, really, um, how do you orchestrate the courts, the legislature, the press, um, the executive to make it all happen? I imagine you thought about that in a very self-conscious way, Well, when we started the ACLU Women's Rights Project, we had three missions. And the first was public education. People have to care about 
the change. The second was legislature. The legislature, get the legislature to change. That was one of the reasons why I was a big uh, advocate of the Equal Rights Amendment, because that would prompt legislatures to clean up the law books. And then, finally, the, the courts. So that's, it was, it was we worked on, on all three all levels. And on legislative change, we got a great gift from the dean of the law school I first attended when he was Solicitor General. This is Erwin Griswold. It came about in a, in a tax case that my husband and I, we, it was the only case where we were ever co-counsel. Co-counsel. And it, it involved a tax deduction for the care of a young child or a dependent, a disabled dependent of any age. The deduction was available to any woman or any widowed or divorced man. The plaintiff, the complainant in that case was Charles E. Moritz, a man who never married, but took great care of his mother, though she was at the time 93. He couldn't get this deduction. He represented himself in the tax court, and his brief was the soul of simplicity. It read, if I had been a dutiful daughter, I would get this deduction for the care of my mother. I am a dutiful son and I don't get the deduction. That makes no sense. <laughs> so that, that was the case, the Morris case. It was even, we wrote the brief in Morris before we reread and it was the model for the, for the reread brief. And my idea was, it didn't work out because litigation doesn't always run a smooth course, that we'd have two cases of stereotypes. Sally Reed, who was assumed to be less competent to administer an estate, and Charles Morris, who was considered less competent to care for an elderly parent. And if we could get those two before the court at the same time, they would see the irrationality of these vastly overbroad classifications by gender. So now I've strayed from the question you asked. No, no, not at all. I wanted to talk about your early cases, and you did that. Um, Those cases uh, in the the, the casebooks now are commonly referred to as the formal equality cases. And one thing I wanted to ask you is, just for the record, was your goal only formal equality? One has to begin at the beginning. And, And what we faced were statute books, states and federal that were riddled with classifications based on sex. What we wanted was to open all doors for men and for women that nobody should be blocked from an opportunity or pursuit of a particular course in life because he was male or she was female. So the idea was to get rid of all the overt gender-based classifications. That was the starting point, to have 
law books that did not classify people, make lump classifications uh, on the basis of is it a mother, is it a father, is it a son, or is it a daughter. And that was the mission. And what we encountered in approaching courts was something that was absent in the, in the movement for racial justice. So as everyone understood by the 50s and 60s that race discrimination was a bad thing. But many people thought that gender discrimination operated benignly in women's favor that when women were told they couldn't do this, like couldn't work at night or couldn't work over time because their hours were limited to eight, that that, all those protections sheltered women. It was hard for them to see that those so-called protections really operated, as Justice Brennan said in the, the Frontiero case, to put women not on a pedestal but in a cage. So that's that's what we... Yeah, and the way I see those cases is really focused not on mere formal equality but on focused on a gender system which actually continues to be the gender system we have to this day which is what historians call separate spheres. Um, and that's... The, the system that associates men with work and women with family and also has um, very particular descriptions of men and women um, that women are naturally focused on care and cooperation, men are naturally focused on ambition and, and um, work and competition. And as I look back at those cases, it seems to me that um, a central theme in those cases was to change that system and that one of the reasons that you felt so comfortable choosing males often as plaintiffs is that an equally effective way to deconstruct that system is to change roles for men as to change roles for women. Mm. I wonder what you think of that. I think that's exactly right. In fact, I've said um, quite often that if... I were to invent an affirmative action plan, it would be to give men every incentive to be close to children. So I would give them a plus as kindergarten teachers, as grade school teachers, and it's, we would have a healthier world, I think, if men shared women's responsibility for bringing up the next generation. But what you're, you're talking about, I, I have a, a story that just epitomizes the attitude of society. Even in the 70s, uh, when the women's movement was alive, uh, I, had, I have a son now in his 40s, but then um, what I called a lively, lively child. I called him lively, she just called him hyperactive. <laughs> um, and I would get calls once a month to come down to the school, see the room teacher or the principal or sometimes the school psychologist. 
<laughs> and hear the story of my son's latest escapade. So one day I'm sitting in my office in Columbia. I'm very, very tired. That's what I was most of the time in those years. And weary as I was, I said, this child has two parents. Please alternate calls. <laughs> it's his father's turn. And Marty did show up. And after that, even though there was no discernible change in my son's behavior, the calls came barely once a semester. Because people wow. were reluctant to take a father away from important his, work and wouldn't hesitate to make a mother feel a little guilty that <laughs> and she was off working while her child was making mischief. You know that that that's such an important story and yet when I um, had my own children what probably 30 years later exactly the same thing happened to me and they called me up every single time I didn't have such a lively child um, so it wasn't as common uh, and when I tried to say to them I wasn't as tactful as you maybe um, this child has two parents uh, there's a lot of pushback so I think this system of separate spheres has been far more resilient than we had all hoped in the 70s but I wanted to shift actually to a doctrinal um, question. When you started litigating the Reed v. Reed line of cases, um, you had hoped, I think, to achieve a strict scrutiny standard in equal protection. And then at a certain point, like a good advocate, you developed a fallback position when it seemed that that was going to be hard to get and settled for an intermediate scrutiny standard um, in which the government had to articulate um, the, that the classification served important governmental objectives and that was substantially related to those objectives. And then when you joined the court um, and decided the famous equal protection case that in many ways ended that line of cases that you had begun in the 70s, the um, VMI case, you articulated the standard differently. Now, you were quoting from an earlier opinion from Justice O'Connor, but you articulated the intermediate scrutiny standard as requiring an exceedingly persuasive justification. So I guess my question is, did this new language up the ante? Did that it up the intermediate scrutiny standard a little bit more towards the strict scrutiny? Or didn't it? Or it, it, will I have to wait to was, read it in opinion? We call it heightened heightened scrutiny. Mm -hmm. And it, it came, ironically, from a case where the... Well, let me, let me just describe it. The first case was... Uh, I think it's. Um, it came from Craig v. Bourne. The no, beer case, it no? was before. It was in the Feeney versus something board of something of Massachusetts. Mm. This was a civil service system where veterans got not simply points added, which mm. is the usual, but if you were a veteran and you got a bare pass you would go to the top of the list and you would trump a woman who had a 99% score. The result was that civil service jobs in Massachusetts, the top jobs were overwhelmingly male. And these were women who had scored very high 
and lost out to a veteran who had maybe a score, a score in the 60s. In that case, I think Justice Stewart wrote the opinion. He said, there was no attempt to discriminate against women. The result was in spite of, I mean, that they didn't, there was no intention to disadvantage women. There was only an intention to advantage veterans who had done service for the country, which everyone agreed. Our argument was that uh, the, the preference was not being challenged, but it has to be reasonable. It can't operate so that it cuts out mm-hmm. virtually every, every woman. In that opinion, yeah. that's when that language of um, exceedingly persuasive justification first came up. Oh, so it was, it's a little bit, I was reminded of, in Reed v. Reed, when we were, when the equal protection standard was r- rational basis. That was rational basis. Mm-hmm. Which, in, in practical effect, uh, effect meant um, that, it, that a classification would have to fail the lunacy, it would have to be lunatic to, yeah. to be yeah. uh, struck my, down. my constitutional law professor called it the idiot test because any idiot could pass it. So I looked at all the old equal protection cases to find good language. I came on one that was called Royce de Guano, it was a case that probably we decided the wrong way. It had, I think, Brandeis and a couple of other um, very respected jurists were dissenters. But it had this language that that Berger quoted in in Reed v. Reed that was favorable to uh, striking down arbitrary classifications. So the the heightened scrutiny. The exceedingly persuasive justification was the best phrase that I could use, and it had it had been used in, in at least twice before by the by the Supreme Court. It was also used by Justice O'Connor in Mississippi v. Hogan. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So but that so was in the that was in eighty two, and, yeah. and yeah. the Feeney case was in the seventies. Yeah. Interesting. So that's why you didn't cite Craig v. Boren. You went to the other language. Yes. Sorry, this is getting wonky. Let's go on. Um, uh, today you said that you, would, you think you would never be confirmed for the Supreme Court because of your activism with the ACLU. And what do you think has changed? Do you think it's the confirmation process or the politics more broadly or something else? It's not the process itself. When when I was nominated for the good job I now have, (laughs) um, Chief Justice Berger came to congratulate me. And he said, Ruth, you know, when I became chief in 1969, my confirmation hearing lasted exactly one hour. And I said, yes, Chief, and there's one word that describes the difference, and that word is television. The members of the committee have all that free time to communicate to the folks back home to impress them with their knowledge, and they're not going to give that up. So that, 
<laughs> that, that hasn't changed, but what has changed is back in 1993 and again 94 when Justice Breyer was nominated, there was a true bipartisan spirit prevailing in that Congress. Um, now Vice President then, Senator Biden chaired the committee the leading Republican member, the ranking Republican member, was Orrin Hatch. You can read Orrin Hatch's biography, autobiography, and he will tell you with great pride that before the president nominated me, before he nominated Justice Breyer, he called Senator Hatch and said, Orrin, I'm thinking of nominating Ginsburg or Breyer, Breyer or Ginsburg, would that be okay with you? That doesn't happen no. anymore. I, mean, I, I was uh, confirmed 96 to 3. Think of the vote for Elena Kagan, who is superbly qualified for the job, and she had many more negative votes because the division was on party lines. Someday we will get back to the way it, it once once was, but it will take people on both sides of the aisle with sense who really care for making government work to effect that change. I should say, by the way, that the White House people were quite worried about my ACLU affiliation and in what they call murder boards, uh, Preparation for the hearing. People in the White House staff would take the part of various senators and ask me questions, and the questions would be run this way. You were on the ACLU board in the year 1976, and in that year they passed this and that resolution. Did you vote for, for it? And I said, stop, because I will not do anything to disparage the ACLU. And so they grudgingly gave up. (laughs) And there was not a single question asked by any senator, Republican or Democrat, about the work that I had done with the ACLU. That would not happen today. Gone with the wind. If you could accomplish one thing before leaving the bench and assuming that all of your colleagues would magically agree, um, what would that thing be? Oh, it's hard to pick out just one thing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'd probably go back to the day when the Supreme Court said that uh, the death penalty cannot be administered with an even hand. But that's not likely to be an opportunity for me. I mean, it's the hardest part of the Mm -hmm. job that I do. Even today, I don't know how many calls I got because it was an execution schedule for Mm -hmm. 7 o'clock tonight in Texas. It has been stayed. Um, But that's... That's a dreadful part of the business I have to do. I I had to make a hard decision. 
I could have said, as Justice Brennan and Justice Marshall did, I'm going to take myself out of this. I'm going to say the death penalty is in all cases unconstitutional, period. But if I did that, I would have no voice in what's going on. I would not be able to make things perhaps a little better. So I have stayed Mm -hmm. in that business. Mm -hmm. As far as gender classifications are concerned, I don't think the labels mean as much as maybe law students and even law professors think they do. I mean, watch, watch what the court does, not what it, the, the words that it uses. It uses. You have said that you're not a fan of the, the um, different levels of scrutiny and that you, in the ideal world, would shift to more of an equal citizenship idea. Uh, I'd like to hear you talk about that a little bit more, and especially whether that provides enough guidance. Not that the levels of scrutiny provides much guidance either. Well, the jury case is a a perfect example of that. You you treat people as equal citizens, equal in opportunity, equal in what they can aspire to do. Uh, I do think also that that Thurgood Marshall had the right idea when he said it really depends. It's just kind of a sliding scale. How important is mm-hmm. is the right? How important is the governmental interest asserted in defense of the claim? But just as just as we would not recognize any uh, odious racial classifications, any uh, of the kind that once existed. Mm-hmm. So it should be with um, for all people, we should not be stopped from pursuing whatever talent God has given us simply because we are of a certain race, a certain religion, a certain national origin, a, a, a certain gender or gender preference. Has being on, uh, being on the Supreme Court um, more or less been what you thought it would be like? Or has it been different? And if so, how so? The most surprising thing for me was the high level of collegiality mm-hmm. on the court. You might not get that idea if you read, for example, <laughs> Justice Scalia's dissent in the, in the, in the VMI case. Yes, I noticed that dissent, I must say. But that's his style. You know, his his opinions are always attention-grabbing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And mine, because I don't say anything bad about the other side, uh, I'd rather people say bland, maybe boring. <laughs> <laughs> but so it's, it's a different style. Uh, Justice O'Connor wrote opinions, as I did, that she never put down the other side or... Or the judge who decided the case in the court of first instance or on on appeal. When I read some of those opinions, and I, as you can tell, I've been reading a lot of them, um, I sometimes wonder how, after deciding a very bitterly divided case, you folks come to work the next day and see each other at the coffee machine. How does it work? 
because we res- not merely respect, but really genuinely like each other. I mean, Scalia is my biggest buddy at the opera. Yes. And we have traveled different places in the world together. Uh, when, well, the best example that I can give of how the court operates as a family with each other uh, were my two cancer bouts. First, colorectal cancer, um, which was diagnosed early in September, and the court starts sitting the first Monday in October. Everyone rallied around me to make it possible for me to be to show up in court. And it, that first sitting session, the end of it, then Chief Ju- Justice Rehnquist called me into his office and said, uh, Ruth, I think we'll, we should keep you light. What case would you like to have from this sitting? Uh, something that he wow. had never done before. <laughs> and I said, Chief, Chief, not... Uh, not this sitting because I'm going to go through uh, chemotherapy and radiation and there will come a time when I need to have a light assignment but this time Mm -hmm. I said there's there's two cases I would love to have and he said well those are two cases uh, I was thinking of writing (laughs) (laughs) but he gave me one Uh and and, and then Sandra she called me in the hospital. She said, you're going to get a lot of cards. And she said, don't, don't even try to answer them. Just concentrate on what you have to do. And when you get up to chemotherapy, schedule it on a Friday so you'll get over it Saturday and Sunday and be back in court on Monday. Um, every, everyone cared and and took care of me so I could get through that hard time. And the same thing with my pancreatic cancer surgery two years ago. So I think that's a, a side of the relationship among the justices that we don't see as often because it's not written down. Um, you've also said uh, we all revere the court. And what we want to do is to make sure we just don't do any damage to it. And that means none of us can protect, project our will singly onto the others. We are a collegial bench. Yeah. And I, I wanted to hear you talk more about that, really a constitutional vision and sense of role and purpose. I think that the U.S. Supreme Court is unique in the world uh, in, to the extent that society accepts the court as having the final word on on what the Constitution means. And because that's a heady responsibility, there has to be at least five people who will agree on what the outcome is. So sometimes I'm asked, well, why did you put that in or the other thing in? And I'll say, you know, can you think about what I am doing. I am writing for a court, not for myself. So I take notes at our conference. If I'm assigned the opinion, I try to incorporate the view that others on my side. And if I circulate an opinion and someone says, oh, please take out footnote four, 
or add a citation to my opinion in such and such case. <laughs> so, why not? I am heartened in that by something that Charles Evans Hughes said. He said that he always tried to write his opinions as cleanly and clearly as he could. But if a colleague wanted him to put in something else, in it goes. And let the law schools figure out what it meant. And I must say, having been a law professor for over 30 years, I thank you. <laughs> and to the students, when something doesn't make sense, you just heard her say, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> and I can say, too, that there's a lot of togetherness on the court. We have exchanges with jurors from other countries, and there's usually two, three, four, or even more of us. We've had exchanges with the European Court of Justice. Mm -hmm. A few times, I was in India with Justice Scalia. Um, On an elephant? Yes, it was a, <laughs> quite a magnificent <laughs> and, and very elegant elephant. <laughs> and my feminist friends, when they see the, the photograph of Ginsburg and Scalia on this elephant, they say, say, Ruth, why are you sitting in the back? <laughs> and you heard it here. We did say that. <laughs> I wanted to talk to you, actually, about um, international and foreign law. Uh, you've said learning about another legal system opens your eyes to facets of your own system. I frankly don't understand the reservations voiced by some of my colleagues about referring to foreign and international law. And I was actually talking to a friend of mine who clerked for you way back when you were on the D.C. Circuit. And she said that even then you traveled to other countries and met with other uh, judges from other countries and met often um, with them as well in the United States. So I wanted to ask what kinds of insights those conversations and your study of international law have given you both into other systems and also into our own. Well, one is that you see that there are other ways to achieve the, the same end, and there, there are bright minds in other places struggling with the same basic human rights issues that confront us. Think of the balance between liberty and security. How much liberty are we willing to give up in the name of security? And one case that I give as an example, it comes from the Supreme Court of Israel. It's a judgment by Aharon Barak in the so-called um, ticking bomb case. And the question before the court was, if the police have a suspect that they believe knows where and when a bomb is going to go off, can the police use extraordinary means, or to put it bluntly, torture, to extract that information? The message of that opinion was torture never. The explanation is that if we allow security concerns to so overwhelm 
our deep attachment to fundamental human values, to the dignity of each person. We will come more and more to look like our enemy and what greater victory could we hand them than over time to resemble them in their disrespect for human dignity. So, and I think we have a majority on the court recognizes the, the value of references to what courts are doing abroad. And I should qualify that by saying, of course, what another court does is never a binding precedent in the United States court. These are not people serving our system. But still, if I can read and refer an opinion to any law review article, even a student note in a law journal, and no one questions that, why should they question a side glance to an opinion, say, from the uh, Supreme Court of Canada, or the German Constitutional Court, or the European Court of Human Rights? You've also said that, in some ways, U.S. courts' failure to engage with decisions in other countries could undermine the overall influence of this country and undermine the sense that we're part of the world community. Yes. Until World War II, we didn't look abroad simply because there was nothing to look at. (laughs) Most systems were fiercely attached to parliamentary supremacy. And that meant the legislature, not the court, said what the Constitution means. Then after World War II, constitutional courts emerged in many places in the world. And those courts had only one place to look, and those were at decisions of the U.S. Supreme Court. Well, after some years, when I went abroad, I was often asked, we look at decisions of your court. Of course, they don't bind us, but to see what you think about this hard question. And yet, you never refer to our decisions. Don't you think we have something to contribute to this international conversation about fundamental human rights. And so what I have said is, with many courts engaged in this activity, if we don't listen to others, if we pay no attention to what they're doing, we won't be listened to. I think nowadays, it may be that Canada's constitutional, Canada's Supreme Court is cited in foreign decisions more frequently than decisions of the United States Supreme Court. Why? Because if you pick up decisions of that court on questions of human rights, you will find that they refer to decisions of other courts. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And 
we don't very often. Now, there are notable exceptions. In the, in the um, what was the case? Um, the case that held that consensual same-sex relations cannot be made a crime. Lawrence. Lawrence, yeah. Lawrence v. Texas. Justice Kennedy cited a leading decision of the European Court of Human Rights from 1981 and then several follow-on decisions. Not because we're bound by the judgments of the European Court of Human Rights, but because that court has recognized that consensual relations between two people that do no harm to anyone cannot be something that government prohibits. And so, um, and then also in some of the death penalty cases, there have been references to foreign decisions, foreign legislation. You would think that there would be more and more of it. You know, when our nation was new, we looked abroad. It's very common to cite cases from abroad. Yes, it was standard. And as far as international law is concerned, as distinguished from the law of another nation, that is part of our law. Mm-hmm. We are among the world's nations, so we are bound by the law of nations, which is what they called international law in John Marshall's day. I, I, have, to, I have to ask one question, or I can't, could not can't face my friends. Um, since I'm basically an employment lawyer, um, you know what case I'm going to ask about. Uh, the Walmart case, Dukes versus Walmart. Oh, I thought it was going to be Lily Ledbetter. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I had a question about Lily Ledbetter too, but that was such a happy case uh, uh, in terms of its ultimate result. Um, your dissent in Lily Ledbetter really turned people's heads. The Carhartt versus Gonzalez was the other one um, because you read from the bench for one of the first times in your career. This was 2007. Um, I guess one question before I get back to Walmart, which my friends will kill you if you don't tell Mm -hmm. me about, um, is before that you had almost never or maybe never read from the bench. What changed? This is... the, the, The court's custom is that the majority opinion will be summarized from the bench. And then the person who reads the majority opinion, summarizes it, will say, Justice so-and-so filed a dissenting opinion joined by, and, and the, but the dissent is not summarized. If you think that the court not simply got it wrong, but to use Justice Stevens' expression, that the court was profoundly misguided, that it was egregiously wrong, that you want to call attention to that. In Lily Ledbetter's case, there was an immediate object, and it was Congress. Mm. I ended the dissent by saying, the ball is now in Congress's court to say what Congress, I think, meant all along. Um, in other cases, you are speaking to a later court 
And that's every dissenter's hope that the law will be one day as they thought it should be. We think of the great dissenters in the First Amendment cases, mm -hmm. Holmes and Brandeis, they were just two, and most of their dissents are today the law of the land. Mm -hmm. So either you're aiming for an immediate reaction, the, you know, the, the reaction to Lilly Ledbetter was just like the reaction to the Gilbert case, mm -hmm. the, the Title VII <laughs> case that mm -hmm. said, uh, discrimination on the basis of pregnancy is not discrimination on the basis of sex. Um, and there was the Pregnancy Discrimination Act, Act was, right was mm -hmm. the result of that. And it made people understand the coalitions were broad. I mean, everybody came in on board for the Pregnancy Discrimination mm -hmm. Act. And there was a similar reaction in Lily Ledbetter's case. Mm -hmm. But now you're dying but bringing, to ask bringing me about you back Walmart so that I can survive another day. Yes. Bringing you back to Walmart. Um, uh, the Supreme Court opinions um, really unsettled class action law in a very, very big way and um, really also changed the economics um, of class action law. Um, and I uh, struggled to find a question I could ask you, but I, um, and I, don't, I couldn't find one, uh, but I did, here's what I came up with. What are some of the key issues that divided the majority and the dissenters? Um, some of us were surprised at the parts of the majority opinion that the dissenters signed on, but I don't want to get too wonky. But what can you say about okay, Walmart? Okay, there's, so there's two parts to Walmart. One is the basic requirement to have a class action that you have a common question of law or fact. That is a gateway determination that has to be made in every class action. And it had been considered uh, not a very high hurdle. Yes. The court held that it is quite a steep hurdle. I mean, the, the common question of law or fact in the Walmart case was that women overwhelmingly were not getting raises, were not being promoted at the rate that men were getting raises or being promoted. And the court said, well, the class, this class has 1.5 million people. Those are 1.5 million discrete employment questions. How could there be any commonality? Maybe uh, one woman was passed over because she was stealing from the till. And maybe another one was just uh, incompetent. The, the, the dissenters uh, understood the argument that there were people making decisions and they were overwhelmingly white men and the people that they were choosing for the promotions were of the same race, the same gender. 
perhaps there was unconscious bias. There was not deliberate discrimination, but people feel more comfortable with people like themselves. Mm -hmm. And the example that I gave in the opinion, uh, criticizing the majority, was there was a great transformation in symphony orchestras in the United States by the simple device of dropping a curtain so the auditioner didn't know whether it was a woman or whether it was a man. And as I mentioned to the constitutional law class this morning, my violinist friend told me it was more than that. We auditioned shoeless because then the auditioners won't hear the woman coming on on stage, won't hear her her heels. Mm -hmm. But that was, there was no deliberate discrimination, but a, a woman came on stage and there was a certain perception of her. It was different yeah. when, when it was a man. So that was on that part. The other part uh, on which we all agreed mm-hmm. was what kind of class action should this be? If what you're dominantly seeking is injunctive relief, then you can go under B2 an easier form to deal with than B3, where your predominant complaint is money. What you want is money. The B2 classes had been prominent in the civil rights era when people were seeking class relief, that is, no segregation in schools, you wanted a decree that would bind everyone, and it didn't matter if one of the members of the class said, I like to be segregated. Well, it was the same thing in the effort to put women on juries. Some women might say, I like it the way it is. Don't change it. The relief has to be the same for every member of the class. So it's, that's what B2 was meant to deal with, and not with money claims. Uh, the claim in Walmart was we want injunctive relief and we want back pay. The court thought that the really driving force in that case was the money. Most of the women in the class had already left Walmart's employ, so the injunction was going to mean a whole lot to them, but every woman wanted the money and frankly, so did the lawyers who brought, <laughs> brought the, the action. So we said this class is fit for B2 uh, classification, B, B3, 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 and not B2. And that was, we were unanimous in that, that judgment mm-hmm. that you couldn't take a class action rule that dealt with money claims and said those go this way and injunctive relief claims and try to shove the money claim into the injunctive relief category. I I see Evan is standing up, but I'm going to ask two more short questions, Evan. Um, But before I do, I wanted to thank everybody who had helped me prepare for this interview. Uh, My staff at the Center for Work-Life Law, Linda Greenhouse, Hillary Cardcastle, Beth Hillman, Rory Little, Joel Paul, Susan Williams, and my Gender in the Law class. And now, here are my two last questions. First, what's your favorite comfort food? (laughs) (laughs) 
Marty made so many wonderful things, and it's hard for me to pick out just one thing. Well, he made, I don't know if you'd call this comfort food, but the ambassador of France to the United States had dinner with us one evening and said, Marty made the best baguettes outside France. So that was... Oh my goodness. Now so, that's I mean, a man who bakes his own oh, bread. <laughs> and my very last question is this. Um, what would you like to see as your legacy on the court? I would just like people to think of me as a judge who did the best she could with whatever limited talent I have. <laughs> to keep our country true to its to what makes it a great nation and to make things a little better than they might have been if I hadn't oh, been there. You. And I would like to thank you for all of the work you've done on behalf of women and also for working so hard um, to keep the courts a respected institution. So thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.